Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I'm actually only going to begin this morning by reading from verses 46 and 47. We've gone over this passage numerous times, and I'm going to come back to some of these verses and look at them again, but I'm just going to read those two as we begin. Verse 46 and 47, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is, to the Jews in the synagogue. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would be at work giving us ears to hear what he is saying to the church. Father, we pray that we would understand this word that was superintended by your Spirit, is written at the hand of Luke for the sake of your body. We pray that understand Paul's first missionary journey here and, and really his first missionary effort in that journey. That we would understand his message and how his method was, of mission was derived from that was really born out of that message. Father, we pray that we would understand that like Paul, we are indebted to all men that they might know Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Well, as, as most of you know, we as a church had the privilege of helping start an organization called Radius International. I bring it up because I was just at their graduation. Radius is an organization that trains, for those of you who don't know, it's an organization that trains people who are going to go and plant churches among unreached language groups. In other words, there's about 3,100 language groups in the world who do not have any access to the gospel. There's no Bible translation. There's no Bible literature, there are no gospel Christian workers there, there are no churches, there are no pastors, there is no access to the gospel whatsoever. Think of that, 3,100 people groups representing an excess of probably 2 billion people with no access to the gospel. And Radius was started to train church planners to go there. People don't want to go there any longer because they are the hardest places in the world to go, the least comfortable, the most likely to bring about suffering, the hardest, if you will, soils to till. They're largely going to Buddhist, Muslim, and Hindu people groups in closed access countries. Um, they face quite a bit of struggle in that. That's what Radius exists to do, to train people to do that. And as I sat at the Radius graduation, really our, our fifth graduation our sixth class comes in July. As I sat there on Friday in the graduation, I was reminded of why Sovereign Grace exists as a church. Why, I was reminded why the Lord hasn't yet taken me home. I was reminded why Christ has not yet returned. The graduation caused the same thoughts in my mind that I am, I'm compelled really to consider every graduation. What the Lord is doing isn't about me. It is about the glory and grace of our Lord being known and rejoiced in among every tribe and language and nation. We are a church who believes that the gospel is given to us by God's sovereign grace, and thus we want to share it with others. In fact, we believe we're obligated to share the gospel with others. We're indebted to others. And any understanding of the gospel, any understanding of the gospel, of that doctrine that fails to issue in you recognizing that you owe it to others to tell them the news is a perverse understanding of the gospel. Not that it would be nice if you told it to others. Not that it would be some kind of 
extra grace if you told it to others. Not that it would be some duty you finally fulfilled that gets you to some higher level of sanctification if you told it to others, but you will owe it to others to tell them the gospel. Look at Paul, Romans, keep your hand in Acts 13 and look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. He has not been able to visit the church at Rome, though he wants to. He's wanted to go there. He's never been there. He's wanted to go there. He's writing this letter. And one of the things he tells them is, I'd like to come to you, but when we get to chapter 15, he says, I'm going to stop by and visit after I help the saints in Jerusalem because there's a famine. I need to deliver an offering to them to help them out. And then after I help them, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to come to you as I'm headed to Spain because the gospel is not known in Spain. And so I'm going to come to you so you can give me some money to help me get to Spain. Now look at what he says in verse 14. I am under obligation. I'm indebted. That's what that word is in the Greek. I, I owe it. I'm indebted. I'm under obligation. I'm indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians. Barbarians are the people from the north, from Europe. The reason they're called barbarians is because, well, this is an onomatopoeia. You know what onomatopoeia is? It's one of my favorite words in the English vocabulary. Onomos is the word, to, is the word name. An onomatopoeia, that's the word name in Greek. An onomatopoeia is, is a word that says its own name. It, it, in other words, it sounds like what it's saying. So why they named them bar- barbarians is because when the European people from the north were interacting with the Greeks, what they heard from them was this is how they heard their language. They spoke. They heard bar, 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 bar. That's what they heard. Barbarians. Right? That's how they named them. So the Greeks and the barbarians. He's talking about the people to the north who don't know the gospel to the north and the west. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, why does he owe them? Why is he in debt to them? And then he goes on and says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to preach the gospel because I'm indebted to you. I want to preach the gospel to the barbarians, the Greeks, because I'm indebted to them. I want to preach the gospel to the wise and the foolish because I'm indebted to them. What does he mean he's indebted to them? Have they done anything for Paul? No. So why is he indebted to them? Because he shares their common sin. He shares the common judgment due to him for sin. He shares their common humanity. But he has something that they lack. The barbarians don't know Christ. And Paul received Christ through the free, sovereign grace of God. And so he feels indebted to other men. And I mean that in a gender-inclusive way, you understand. He feels indebted to others who don't know him who haven't shared this salvation. He owes them. Look what he goes on to say. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is a, a way of saying he is proud of the gospel. It's, it's, it's a way of speaking in the negative when you're saying something positive. You know, my wife comes in, how do I look today? Not bad, right? You know, I don't mean you just look not bad. I mean, you look good. You guys get that, right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. That's what drives him and his obligation, his desire to preach. Because I'm not, I'm proud of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the gospel saved me. And it wasn't because of any good in me. It was the righteousness in the gospel that I received through faith. The righteousness of Christ that is applied to me through faith, which I didn't merit, I don't deserve. And therefore, I'm now indebted to all those who don't know. I got to go tell them. God graciously gave us what we did not deserve. You know, we're no better than our neighbors. Do you know that? You might suspect that you're a little better. We're no better than unbelievers around the world. You, you realize you don't, you don't deserve the grace of God and the gospel more than ISIS does. You understand that? You don't deserve it more than they do. 
I, I bet that's a hard one for you to chew on. Grace is undeserved. We are in our original state every bit as condemned as them. That doesn't mean your sin has run you down the road as far into corruption and evil as theirs has. But your sin ran you far enough down the road to deserve condemnation justly. And so has theirs. And we're indebted to tell them about the gospel. Thus, we owe a debt to those unbelievers in that we share a common humanity, a common just, if you will, condemnation, but not a common salvation. God has sent the gospel through others to you, hasn't he? Where would you be had Paul not been called, if you will, by the Macedonian man to go north, had he completed his direction toward Asia? But he went north, which brought the gospel into Europe, which brought the gospel here and to you. Where would you be if not for the free grace of God? And now, as those who have been saved, because others bother to tell you, I don't know who bothered to tell you. Maybe it was your Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a youth pastor. Maybe it was some guy on the street who walked up to you and just started talking to you. I have no idea who told you. What I do know is someone told you, by the grace of God, you know Jesus. And now you are commanded, obligated, indebted, to take that same gospel to others. You owe it to your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, and your friends to tell them about how you are saved and how they can be saved. If your understanding of the gospel leads to a life where your mouth, your front door, or your wallet remains closed, then you must not yet grasp how glorious the good news is that came to you. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to motivate you with guilt. I, I want you to understand that. Now, it's fine if you feel guilty, okay? I'm okay with that. If you are keeping the great news of your salvation quiet, if your prayers are not for the lost, if your front door isn't open to unbelievers, if your money isn't helping out to support the church and her missionaries, you ought to feel guilty, you're commanded to do all those things. However, that guilt is not sufficient to motivate you. So I'm not attempting to motivate you with guilt. It's a good indication, however, guilt is, that you need to repent and to look to Christ for forgiveness. But that guilt is not going to drive you to sacrificial mission. What's going to drive you is your joy in knowing the forgiveness of your sins in Christ. That's what drove Paul the good news that Jesus has crucified and resurrected on his behalf, that Jesus is his Savior and his Lord, and that all who look to Christ are forgiven for their sins and declared righteous is precisely what drove the apostles and the early church to be on their knees in prayer for the lost, to be giving sacrificially to the mission of making Christ known, to be opening their front doors to unbelievers, to open their mouths about Christ no matter the cost. What drove them was the gospel. Paul taught that he believed this is an obligation of the church in Acts 13, verse 46. Go back there if you will. I want to continue to see Paul's obligation. Really, here in the first missionary sermon we hear from him, I think it's important to look at the obligation he felt even here. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Remember, they're in the synagogue preaching. They're in the synagogue preaching. And the Jews are um, getting upset, and they have, after they preached in the synagogue, they came back the next week, and huge crowds came. Now, we don't know if this exact scene is in the synagogue or, or somewhere else. We just know that huge crowds have shown up because of their synagogue preaching the week before. And so now they're there with this huge crowd, and some of the Jews are getting upset and are slandering them. And look what verse 46 says. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary the word of God to be spoken first to you. What does he mean by that? Same thing he means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's his point? His point is that God covenanted with Abraham. 
and promised Abraham that he would send a Messiah to save his people. And so the gospel goes first to them because they are originally the people who received the covenant and the promises and the adoption. And from their own line is the Messiah, Romans chapter 9. You can go look there. That, that is what he's getting at. So the gospel, in a historical sense, goes first to the Jew. And then he goes on to say what? But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, this is a, an ironic way of speaking. They, the Jews did not say, you know what? We appreciate what you're saying. We appreciate all that Jesus did. But the problem here is we're just not worthy of eternal life. That wasn't what they were saying. Okay? I mean, you know very few people who actually declare of themselves they're not worthy of eternal life, right? And pretty much every time you go to a funeral, suddenly this person we all knew wasn't a saint is suddenly a saint. And they are worthy of eternal life. I mean, more worthy than probably anybody you ever met and more worthy than anybody knew, including them. Right? That's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is, ironically, because they've thrown away the gospel, if you will, they've brought condemnation on themselves. They're not worthy of eternal life. And so he goes on and said, Behold, because you've done that, we are turning to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. We're turning to them. For Now catch this in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us. Look at that word. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and then he quotes from Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is interesting that Paul says the Lord commanded us to take the gospel of the Gentiles and that he reads Isaiah 49, 6 and says, Isaiah 49, 6 is a command to us as apostles, and Barnabas isn't an apostle, to Barnabas as well, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's interesting because this is a messianic prophecy, Isaiah 49. So keep your hand in Acts 13 and look at Isaiah 49. If you don't have time to turn there, I'm going to start reading. You can listen. This is Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. In other words, the Lord has put aside, and this is restored Israel, if you will. They're, they're going to head into exile, and this is Israel in the restoration. Israel is my servant. The Lord has set them aside, if you will. Look what he says. And he'll be glorified in Israel, his servant. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. See, the servant of Yahweh, Israel, restored Israel. It's too light a thing that restored Israel just brings back the 12 tribes of Israel. It's too light a thing. In fact, he goes on to say, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here is a prophecy about restored Israel. And when you get to Luke chapter 2, and the prophecy is that restored Israel will not only bring back the 12 tribes, but restored Israel will bring, if you will, the Gentiles in. And when you get to Luke chapter 2, and baby Jesus is brought into the temple, Simeon sees him, and he picks up Jesus, and he looks at him, and he says, this is the consolation of Israel. He's the Messiah. And Simeon then quotes Isaiah 49, 6, and says, Jesus has fulfilled it. He is true Israel, the restorer. He is the one who is bringing salvation to Israel and to the Gentiles. And so Isaiah 49, 6, and we all know this, is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. 
What's amazing is this prophecy about the Messiah that we're told by Luke, who is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we're told by him is fulfilled in Christ, is now taken by Paul. This messianic prophecy is taken by Paul and Barnabas, and they've turned it into a command for themselves. That's a funny way to read the Bible, isn't it? You just took a messianic prophecy and turned it into a command for yourself. A prophecy about Christ and turned it into a command for you as, as apostles. How could that be? How can Paul change this prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus? How can he change it into a command for Paul and Barnabas? And this requires you to remember Acts 1.1. When we started the book of Acts, how does Luke start it? In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the book of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I told you about everything. Now listen, Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, my gospel from the prophecy of Christ's birth, through his birth, through his life, through his ministry, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through his commissioning of you and his ascension, that gospel is the beginning of Jesus' doing and teaching. And so where does Jesus' doing and teaching continue? In the church, by the power of the Spirit. That's where. That's what Luke's getting at. Christ is still at work. He's at work by his Spirit in his church. And so Paul and Barnabas can say, we're part of the body of Christ. We're united to Jesus by the Spirit. And therefore, if you will, his commission is our commission. What was true of him is now true of us because we're united to him by the Spirit. And so he was commanded to take the gospel of the Gentiles, and so we're commanded to take the gospel of the Gentiles. We're his body. He's at work by the Spirit through us. So we join Jesus in seeking and saving the lost. And sovereign grace, that's what motivates us. We started this church with the full knowledge that Christ is not tarrying. He's not waiting in heaven, if you will. As he gives us a chance to just live the fulfilling lives of the American dream. You understand that, right? Have you stopped and considered that? Next time you start thinking about your five-year and ten-year plan, ask yourself the question, is Jesus giving you five or ten years now so that you can fulfill your dreams? Is that what he's doing? So you're going to tarry for five years, 10 years, 20 years, so you can finally self-actualize and be all that you can be? Sorry to steal from the army. Is his out what he's doing? So you can finally find fulfillment? He's waiting in heaven because he looks down and goes, man, you have a nice list of goals I'm holding off on until you've accomplished them. You ever wondered why is Christ tarrying? Is it for the sanctification of his church? Is that why he's waiting? Well, I mean, if he's interested in the sanctification of his church, the best way to get there is come back, resurrect us, and we'll be sanctified. He's not stalling his return so I can pursue a spouse or so my kids can be good athletes or students or so my marriage can be satisfying or so I can achieve career objectives or so I can retire near the beach and live my golden years in the pursuit of personal gratification and comfort. It's not why he's tearing. He's tearing. Christ has told us he's tearing. He has not returned yet because he is gathering his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And when he completes that, then he returns. And the church is the body of Christ, united to him by the Spirit, given that commission. Sovereign Grace started to see people in Bakersfield saved, encouraged, raised up, and sent out to make Christ known, both here and around the world. We exist to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations for the sake of his name. We are the church, and thus we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So this morning, as we're looking at Paul's if you will, first missionary sermon and what he did in his first missionary work, 
I want to visit some of the principles for mission. The gospel is what fueled Paul's mission. That's clear. The gospel fueled it. But what was the gospel message he preached, and how did the gospel shape his methods? So those are two points. What is the gospel message he preached, and how did the gospel shape his methods? So let's look first at Paul's gospel message. And I want to assert this. The message that Paul preaches is the message, if you will, that Jesus preached. It's the apostolic message. It's the message we're commanded to preach as the church. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 26. Acts 13 and verse 26. Brothers, as Paul finishes up his historical survey of Israel and God's promise of bringing a Messiah, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So they were told they would condemn him, and then they did it. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they would carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Now go down to verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is justified, as I think the proper interpretation there, justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now it's declared righteous. Christ crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of your sins and the declaration of righteousness. That is the gospel message. That's always been the gospel message. There is no other good news. There are pretenders, but there aren't any other messages that are truly good news. And friends, we're not, we're not sharing with people. Our burden isn't to share with people the good news of how Jesus can make your life more satisfying. I hear that a lot from folks, though. I mean, I hear it a lot. You know, if you just came to church and started following Jesus, your marriage would be stronger. You know, if, if you would just apply biblical principles, your children would would honor the Lord with their lives. If, if, you would just, if you would just start trusting Jesus, he's going to help you with your business. You know what? If you look to Christ, I know you feel down in the dumps, but if you look to Christ, you're going to have a kind of joy that you don't have. And, and, and some of that may be true, but, but the way you're offering it to them is, is in a very fleeting, kind of sad, pathetic, self-centered way, isn't it? In other words... Come use Jesus to get what you want. Because you're God, and he is your servant, and he exists to give you what you want. You want a happier marriage? You want more success in business? You want better kids? You want to feel better about yourself? Then use Jesus. Turn him into an idol, rub his belly, and get what you want from him. We aren't sharing that. We're sharing the good news of how Jesus saves you. He saves you. We're not sharing the good advice of how to live a better life. We're sharing the good news of forgiveness of sins. We're not preaching the news that people are fine as they are and that God has come in Christ to affirm them for who they are. We're preaching the good news that people are sinners, enemies of God, and that God loves them anyway and has sent Christ to reconcile them to himself. We preach Christ crucified and resurrected. That is our message. We do not preach the gospel because it is widely accepted. Quite the opposite, the world considers it foolishness. The world does not consider foolishness the hope of prosperity. Do you understand that? They love the hope of prosperity. Give them principles for prosperity and they will flock because you are telling them exactly what their itching ears want to hear. Exactly. 
give them principles for a better marriage, a happier life, they will come in in masses. You're telling them what they want. They don't consider that foolishness. Tell them, however, that they are enemies of God because of their sin, that they are under the just condemnation and wrath of God, that they deserve to be in hell. Their only hope of salvation is not found inside of them, but outside of them in the person and work of Jesus Christ and see if they come flocking. See how good that dinner conversation winds up. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We preach the gospel is what I'm getting at because the power of God and wisdom of God for salvation, not because the world is going to like it. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice there's two categories of people. Those who are perishing, the word of the cross is folly to them. Those who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God for us. Clearly, God saved me. Let him deserve it. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, the world isn't going to go out there and divine the truth about God through their own philosophy. They're not going to. That's not how they know him. The world did not know that that's the wisdom of God, that they don't know him that way, by the way. Since that's the case, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's the thing, folks. Don't remove the sting of the foolishness of the gospel by trying to create a gospel that's more palatable to unbelievers. For in doing so, you will empty the cross of its power. Paul's gospel, the biblical gospel, is that God loved us, though we were his enemies, justly under his condemnation, and in his utterly free grace gave us Jesus Christ, who lived the righteous life we failed to, who paid the penalty due to us on the cross and who rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we might receive forgiveness of sins and justification, declaration of righteousness, eternal life. That's his gospel. And his gospel shaped his methods in mission. So I want to look at Paul's missionary methods briefly. And and I'm going to look at five of them. And you're going, five? That's a lot. Just going to go quick. Five of Paul's missionary methods, if you will, and that are really what I'm contending are shaped by the gospel he preached. Here's the first one. The first one is this. Paul's gospel, or Paul and Barnabas' gospel here, the biblical gospel, their gospel as free sovereign grace in Christ, here's what I'm trying to get at. Their gospel was preached to all men and women. Hear that? All men and women. They spoke to all classes and ethnicities, and ages of people. Everyone. Why? Because we share a common damnation, and thus we receive a common offer of salvation. Look at what happens in Acts 13 and verse 44. Look there. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. In other words, there are crowds of people gathering to hear they say, we're going to preach to all of them. There's Jews and Gentiles. There's men and women. There's slaves and free. There's adults and children, and they're preaching the gospel to them all. Now look what he goes on to say, verse 46. And Paul, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary the word of God be spoken first to you, 
since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In other words, we preach the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles, to men and to women, to slaves and to free, to old and to young. It crosses every gender, every ethnicity, every social class, every age group. We preach it to everyone. Last week I preached on Paul's statement here about election. And I hated that that sermon was separated from this sermon. Because it is the fact that God, of God's sovereign election that grounds the necessity that we preach the gospel to everyone without exception. It's a free offer of sovereign grace to everyone. Second, so their gospel was preached to everyone. Second, they grounded their gospel preaching in Scripture. They grounded it in Scripture, always seeing the story of the Bible as pointing to Christ. Always seeing the story of the Bible as pointing to Christ. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 17. As Paul stands up to speak, he says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. In other words, he takes you back to Genesis chapter 12. And then for the rest of these verses, begins to walk through the Old Testament, through David and the promises there, through John the Baptist and the promises there, through the promises of the resurrection that come in Psalm 2 and that come in um, later on in Isaiah. And it just, it just, he keeps going the Old Testament and quotes from um, Habakkuk. All in this passage, he's just going back to the Old Testament and he's driving at the fact that I'm going to tell you about our salvation, this gospel, from the Bible. And I'm going to tell you that from beginning to end, this book is about Jesus. It's about him. You know, it's a sad thing in our day that so many people have lost the sense that the Old Testament's about Jesus. They read it, and it feels like a foreign book to them. It's nice stories about Old Testament people, and maybe there's some cute examples we can learn from. Give us a little courage make us feel faithful, rather than recognizing, no, it's telling us the story that God created us, we fell into sin, he promised to send a Savior, and this is the people through whom he brought that, through whom he brought that Savior, from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David, from the womb of Mary, came the Messiah. The whole Testament story is about that. We seem to miss it. Jesus understood that, by the way. What does he tell the Pharisees in John 5? You search the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. That's the Old Testament. And it's they that testify to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You've missed the point of the Old Testament if you don't see me, Jesus is saying. So they grounded their gospel preaching in Scripture, always seeing the story as pointing to Christ. Listen, it's not only that this story is about Jesus, it's that your current story that you're living in, this history you're living in, is about Jesus too. It isn't about how Jesus comes and makes a better you. It's how you die, how you're crucified with Christ and raised with him. So it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives within me. It's about him. One of the best things to help you understand the puzzle, if you will, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, understand the puzzle of Scripture, is to know the picture on the front of the box that all the puzzle pieces are supposed to make. And when you hold up the front of the box, folks, your picture isn't there. Israel's picture isn't there. Jesus' picture is there. Stories about him. We preach Christ and him crucified. Third principle, they preach the gospel with boldness. They preach the gospel with boldness. So they preach the gospel to all. They preach the gospel from Scripture, always pointing to Jesus. And they preach the gospel with boldness, knowing the results were up to the Lord. That's what they knew. They knew they were up to the Lord. What is boldness? Let me, let me look at Acts 13 and verse 45. Look there. Acts 13 and verse 45. 
But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So, so persecution has begun of the apostles of Paul and, and Barnabas. Barnabas is not an apostle, but you get the point. The persecution begins with them. They're being slandered and reviled, and, and pro- possibly Christ is being reviled with them, or likely he is. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. What's their response to the crowds being abuzz with gossip about them? Is it to cower and go home and go, I'm embarrassed. I, I don't want to speak anymore. I'm not sure what people are going to think of me. Uh, clearly, people don't like me now. Listen to how they're talking about me. I feel a bit humiliated. I think I'm losing friends. I better just shut my mouth. Is that their response? As all this happened, what's their response? They spoke out boldly. It's an interesting thing for Luke to throw in there. This word boldness means, if you will, clarity in the face of fear. In some of your translations, it might say fearlessly. I don't like that I don't like that translation. I get what they're getting at. But the idea here is you're afraid because persecution's there. But you're going to speak into the face of that persecution, though you're afraid, with absolute clarity, knowing that will probably stoke more persecution. You're going to speak with clarity, knowing the results are up to the Lord. They, They don't worry about working out the results, they preach the gospel with clarity in the face of fear, and they leave the results to the Lord. Look at verse 51. After this persecution's been stirred up in the city, it says, verse 51, they shook the dust off from their feet against them and went to Iconium. In other words, the the gospel takes root here in Antioch, Pisidia, and the persecution starts to arise, and as the persecution gets so intense that they're throwing Paul and Barnabas, if you will, out of the city, Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet and go to Iconium. What does that mean? Well, here's the understanding of the dust being on their feet. It was the assumption among the Jews that that as the Gentiles walked on their dirt, they contaminated the dirt with their uncleanness. They weren't Jews. So they contaminated the dirt. And so if you walked on that dirt, then, then their uncleanness was collecting on your feet or your shoes. So to shake the dust off your feet is to declare to a city of people, you're unclean, we want nothing to do with you. Now that's a pretty stark contrast between I'm going to preach the gospel to all of you because I feel indebted to you that you would be saved, and now some of you are throwing us out of town, and I'm shaking off the dust of my feet saying, I want nothing to do with you, you're unclean. And and what's in the middle of that? Paul's saying, listen, The Spirit's going to save who he saves as we preach the gospel. And these people are running us out of town. These authorities are. And we're going to shake the dust off our feet toward them. We'll let the Lord deal with them. We're not having anything to do with them. They go to Iconium. By the way, Paul does come back. If you think this means he never comes back to Antioch, Pisidia, you just have to read one more chapter. He comes back. He's just making a statement. They're not believing. Judgment's on them. The results are up to the Lord. That was 2 Corinthians. Listen to this text in 2 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 2 and verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In other words, he's spreading this fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere as we preach the gospel. Now look what he says. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we're an aroma to both, but it's a very different kind of aroma. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, as we go out and preach the gospel, for some, we're an aroma of death, for others, we're an aroma of life. Who's that up to? Not us, that's up to the Lord. We preach the gospel. He goes on to say it. Who's sufficient for these things? That's what you ought to wonder, right? If I go preach the gospel, I'm an aroma of death from death to death to some, an aroma of life to life for others. How am I possibly sufficient for any of this? Paul's answer, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. In other words, not salesmen. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We're not sufficient. Christ is. 
fact, he goes on in chapter 3 to declare his insufficiency, pointing to the fact that his sufficiency is in the new covenant in Christ. So they preached the gospel with boldness, knowing the results were up to the Lord. Fourth, fourth point of, or methodology, they expected and rejoiced in suffering. Did you hear this? Because this is, this is a tough one for Americans to swallow. We actually believe that there's something wrong when suffering and persecution happens. We assume God has abandoned us. We don't really believe chapters like Hebrews chapter 12 where it says that the, the Lord disciplines the sons he loves. We don't, we don't because as soon as, as soon as something hard comes in our life, we immediately think, well, has the Lord abandoned me? What did I do wrong to, you know, like as if he just is against you and wants nothing to do with you and, and that's how the calculus of God works. Not, oh, he's a good father. He wants his son to grow in holiness. He disciplines the sons he loves. That's not what we tend to think. When persecution comes, when people revile us or gossip about us or turn against us for our gospel proclamation, we immediately think, I must have said something wrong. The reason that guy isn't liked is because he must be saying something wrong. What if he's not liked or what if you're not liked because you're saying something right? And you're being persecuted for that. What if you're going through a hard time because the Lord loves you? And though these things are difficult for a time, they yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that peaceful fruit of righteousness is something the Lord wants you to taste. Because he loves you. Folks, in America, we have insulated ourselves from death and suffering and pain. We're the most drugged culture in the world. Because if we feel off even a little bit, that's wrong. And we're going to drug ourselves out of it. Because we have this expectation that we're going to be healthy, that we're going to feel good, that we're going to be prosperous. I mean, we have entire movements of nutritional things built around the fact that you should never really feel the effects of the fall. If you just eat the right things and drink the right things and do the right motions, you won't experience the fall because we're driven from our fear of death, from the reality of what's coming for us. We want to ignore it, avoid it, and pretend like it isn't there. And because of that, we read it back into the Bible. And we're shocked when they expect suffering and persecution. We're shocked even more when they rejoice in it. Paul, now, Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Could you, have you ever said that in your life? Rejoice in my sufferings. Why does he rejoice in the sufferings? For the sake of Christ's body, the church. He's, he's, I rejoice in my sufferings as I'm filling up in my flesh the afflictions that are lacking in Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Look at what is said here as they expected and rejoiced in suffering. Look down, if you will. Well, look first at verse 45. You see that the crowds are filled with jealousy and contradict what Paul is saying and revile him. And then go down to verse 50. But the Jews inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now look at verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Is that your experience when people persecute you, when they revile you, speak all kinds of evil against your name? Jesus says, what? He says, rejoice when others revile you, speak falsely against you on account of my name. Re rejoice in that day. 2 Corinthians 4, listen to what Paul says about his suffering 2 Corinthians 4, there's a lot of passages I could point to, but this one is about as clear as they come. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, but we have this treasure, that treasure is the gospel, folks. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay are us. You know what jars of clay are for? They're pots. You put things in them. Okay, that's it. They're fragile. Some jars are honorable use. You put nice things in them. Some are dishonorable use. You put refuse in them. We have this treasure in jars of clay, that's us, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, 
persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, we'll take the persecution, we'll take the reviling, we'll take the physical attacks, because as we preach the gospel and get persecuted for that, you come to spiritual life. So I'm ready for death to be at work in me so that life can be at work in you. That's what Paul's saying. You feel the level of his indebtedness? Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's his driving passion. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, sorry, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They expected persecution and they looked to heaven knowing when persecution and suffering comes, my life is not ultimately really here anyway. My hope is there. That's it. Who are um, people who I'm going to have to scrub their name from this recording, just, just so you know, are going to be the directors of Radius Asia. Um, they, they will work in Taiwan as we start the work there and from there went with Brandon and Rachel Buser. You guys have heard me pray for them. They were part of their team. They were a team in the BM people group. They planted a church among the BM. They've lived there for roughly a decade or so. They've been translating the New Testament. Several years ago, his wife contract, contracted breast cancer. While she had breast cancer, it had, had gotten bad enough that they were going to have to do the mastectomy and do radiation and chemotherapy, etc. And she was telling I will stay in Taiwan and deal with the medical stuff. You get back to the people group and make sure they know Jesus. Make sure the Bible's translated. She demanded him to go. He went. She lived. She went into remission. She rejoined him on the field. All was well for the last five years. They're finishing the work there, about to complete the New Testament translation, and found out that... Um, while every time she went for a cancer check, they weren't finding it in the soft tissue because it actually was, had spread through all the bones of her body and her skull, etc. So now they've told her she's terminal. She has six months. They have a 11 or 12, 13-year-old, two daughters in that range. And, and I saw at the Radius Conference, and I said, how are you and your daughters and your wife doing, given that, you know, six months maybe? His response to me stunned me. He looked at me and said, heaven is good even today. All this does for our family is ups the urgency to make Christ known to those who are not. That's what it does for our family. Where are we right now? Our girls are ready for girls to be home. Girls ready to be home. And we are focused on making Christ known like we never have been before. Is that, is that how we respond in our lives to suffering and persecution? Do we recognize that Christ is our life and it's about him and his glory and people knowing him? And So even that kind of tragedy brings that kind of focus for us? with your neighbors, your family members, your friends, your coworkers, the way you sell your cars or downsize your homes or reduce the kind of retirement you have so that missionaries can go and make, people know, make Christ known to people? Are, do you make those kinds of decisions at all? Folks, what drives that man to say that is the gospel. 
He knows Christ. And he's living for him. So they expected and rejoiced in suffering. Fifth and last point, they planted a church. They planted a church and set up, by the way, elders. They planted a church and set up elders. So the fifth method, if you will. They knew that the gospel that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. They knew that, that Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, loved the church and gave his life for her. And they planted a church and they returned to set up elders. If you look at verse 43 of Acts 13, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and, and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, they're just discipling these folks. You've got to continue in the gospel. You have to keep trusting that Jesus is your salvation. Do not walk away from that. Do not forget that. Please remember that. Be ever devoted to that. And then notice what happens. After they've left, they come back. Acts um, um, chapter 14 and verse 21, it talks about Paul and Barnabas returning when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, this being Antioch, Pisidia. And what did they do there, verse 22? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." So they planted churches, they discipled them, they appointed elders. That's part and parcel to their ministry. Here's the goal, Sovereign Grace. We plant churches of people who trust in Christ. We want people to be saved and gather in the body of Christ so they can be encouraged, built up, follow the same pattern of knowing Christ and making him known. Sovereign Grace, your friends, did you hear this? Your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, all the nations of the world need to hear the message of the gospel, and you owe it to them to tell them. And don't wait till you feel ready or feel motivated or feel passionate to go and proclaim Christ. Do your duty. I know we live in a culture that worships at the feet of authenticity and passion. But I'm going to conclude with something fairly radically countercultural. Who cares how you feel about it? Who cares whether there's passion for the mission? The gospel is the truth, and you're indebted to tell others whether you feel like it or not. I don't know any men who get away with telling their spouse, well, I'll be faithful when it feels authentic to me to do so. We need to put a knife through the heart of being led around by our passions and learn to gratefully do our duty. Even if you want fuel for the mission, listen, don't wait around until you try to whip up some fuel in your heart for the mission. Don't wait around for that. It will never get whipped up that way. Rather, consider that Jesus saved you, though you're undeserving. And even though you can see in the course of this sermon that you still turn in on yourself, Jesus still saves you. And now out of gratitude, whether you feel gratitude or not, but because you objectively know God has been gracious to you, you go and tell others. Let me pray. Father, we ask we ask that your son would be rejoiced in by us and made known by us that we would appreciate, have great gratitude for the grace we've been shown in Christ, that we would then feel indebted to those who do not know him to tell them as well. Father, we know that we're not all going to every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth, but we can share in that gospel work through prayer and financial support, and we pray that not only would we open our mouth about Jesus, to our friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members, but that we would pray and support those who are going to unreached language groups and making him known where there is no opportunity. 
Father, we need your spirit to do this work in us and through us. We are not sufficient for these things. But the new covenant that we've, we've been given, the Christ to whom we've been united by your spirit is sufficient. And so we give thanks for him and pray we'd make him known and that your spirit would be pleased to save many. In Jesus' name, amen.